0: Hello, I'm Mark Leonard from the European Council on Foreign Relations and I'm very happy to be joined today by Professor Joseph Nye from Harvard University who is going to talk to me about his latest book Is the American Century Over? So, Professor Nye, is the American Century Over?
1: <laughs> well, the answer i have give in the book is no, but it's going to be quite different uh, than it was in the past. Henry Luce proclaimed the American Century in 1941 to overcome isolationism and get the United States into World War II, and the United States has been the dominant power in terms of the global balance of power uh, for the period since then. The question I ask in the book is, will it still be the most important power in the global balance of power in 2041? And my answer to that is yes, but it's going to need new strategies. And
0: you, in the book, you look at three different kinds of power, at economic power, at military power, at soft power, um, and you argue that nobody else is going to rise up and, and f- match the U.S. in all of those three different domains.
1: That's right. In, it, some people believe that China will be more powerful than the U.S. by 2041. What I do in the book is give facts and figures as to why I think that won't happen. China will probably have a larger economy than the United States by the 2020s, but it won't have a per capita income equal to the United States, which is a measure of the sophistication of an economy. And in military power, it'll still not be a global military power, though its military capacities will increase. And in soft power, which is the ability to get what you want through traction and persuasion rather than coercion and payment, uh, China's not going to be equal to the United States for quite some time, uh, if ever. So I think in all three dimensions of power, the Americans will be more powerful than China in 2041.
0: And how does the, the, the fact that there are going to be many more countries that have big economies that have a big role in their regions and
1: greater ambitions change the nature of American power? I think that's going to be the key question, which is countries like India, Indonesia, Brazil, uh, and as well as China, obviously, are going to increase their share of world product. And that means the Americans are going to have to learn to use coalitions, uh, build institutions, develop networks, which include these countries. Uh, so the strategy for being a leading power uh, is the next quarter century is going to be one which has to be more subtle, let's say, than some of the things we've done in the past.
0: And do you think that those other powers are going to sign on to... Cause presumably part of an American century means that it's American values, American norms, regulations, ideas of what's right and wrong, and also what's important that will dominate the world. I mean, to what extent are those other powers going to sign on to that agenda?
1: Well, it won't be purely American values. There are going to have to be compromises. But on the other hand, if you if you look at different issues, it's going to require different countries doing, uh, cooperating in different ways. Uh, if you take world health, how do you deal with pandemics and so forth? Uh, when we're dealing with Ebola, we don't have to worry too much about different values. You can imagine China, India, Indonesia, and other and African countries all cooperating. But it may still be that the Center for Disease Control in the United States supporting the World Health Organization will be crucial for getting action in an issue like that. Or if you take international monetary stability, uh, you know, China, the United States, uh, and Europe uh, are going to have to agree on what do you do to maintain, let's say, reserves and stability in the banking system. That doesn't really depend upon whether we agree on democracy and free speech
0: yeah it 's funny the way when you start talking about those issues, it sounds very much like sort of the Davos world of the 1990 s when you had global problems, and what we needed to do was to get countries coming together to solve them. Um, but increasingly, if you look at the world, politics and ideology are intersecting with these things and making it much more difficult to to come up with with global problems in fact, often. The things which the institutions that we set up to solve global problems now increasingly look like sort of battlegrounds for economic statecraft and for, for conflict between different countries. How do you see that? Uh, well, there the there are going power? to
1: be institutions and uh, regions where this will be much more difficult. Um, uh, when we talk about security and intervention, uh, the uh, and when we talk about the Middle East, we're we're talking about something which doesn't fit your Davos world.
0: Uh, I think but even when it comes to, I mean, uh, if you look at <clears throat> the conflict between Russia and the West, for example, um, who would have thought that global finance, SWIFT, um, other kinds of things, which feel very much like they're part of Davos' world, would be the main tools of power in which we're
1: um, mm-hmm. trying to, to, to defeat a kind of major enemy? Yeah. Well, I argue in the book that Russia is a country in serious decline. It's a one crop economy, two-thirds dependent on its imports, uh, and exports on energy, has a severe demographic problem, health problem, can't do the reforms it needs. Uh, in It also has military capacity on its borders. So it has escalation dominance when you use military in Georgia or Ukraine, which means that the responses where we have a comparative advantage tend to be in these economic areas. And uh, we'll have to see how this plays out, but I think as a long-run strategy, while Putin has been tactically successful in catching us off balance, he is basically reinforcing the long-term decline of Russia into becoming China's gas station.
0: And if you look at your writings over the years, one of the really compelling theses that you've put forward is that one of the the central foundations of American Power, soft power, has been creating institutions which shape the way that people think about things so that they want what what we want (laughs) rather than Mm -hmm. it even being something that that has to get discussed. When people come to the issues, they're already socialized um, to to see things in a way that is conducive to to American uh, interests and American values. How does the use of sanctions and uh, these other sort of of non-traditional forms of coercion change the way that people look at those institutions? Do they still look like universal institutions with legitimacy, or do they look more like things that you need to hedge against because um, they are so obviously instruments of statecraft?
1: Well, uh, China and Russia uh, have uh, tried to use the BRICS uh, organization and a BRICS bank as a way to escape that dimension. but it's not clear that they're going to be very successful on this. Uh, I don't think that. Uh, I mean, that you you will get tactical coordination between China and Russia, but there are deep divisions within the BRICS. For one thing, at, at a deeper level, China and Russia have a good deal of mistrust. Yeah. But also, India and Brazil are members of the BRICS, which are democracies, as is, and South Africa as well. And I don't think they share exactly the same interests. So you will find various institutional efforts. Uh, used by states, particularly by Russia and uh, to some extent China, to uh, escape the global institutions, but uh, I'm not convinced they're going to replace them. But India and Brazil
0: and even much closer countries like Israel were pretty uncomfortable about sanctions against Russia. Japan. Uh, and Korea took part in them but only because of American pressure and it was something they Mm -hmm. were deeply unhappy about Mm -hmm. having to do because they don't want to push Russia and China into each other's arms they want to use Mm -hmm. Russia to balance China in their regions. I mean what what do you think the long-term implications are of us using these sorts of sanctions, not against very marginal countries like North Korea, but against, you know, one of the, the top ten economies in
1: the world? Well, I think, it, it ideally, I would like to see Russia reintegrated into the global economy. I don't think Russian decline is a good thing for us. Declining countries are often more risk-acceptant and therefore more dangerous. And sanctions tend to push them away, even if not into the arms of China, but away from the sources of, Technology and ideas that they need to reform and modernize. With that said, however, once the Russians violated a basic norm of 1945 that you don't use force to steal territory from your neighbor, uh, it was important that there be a price attached to that. And the sanctions, I think, are the way of imposing that price. I think the reason that, we, that there has been relatively broad support for sanctions. Uh, is because of the importance of that norm. Now, not everybody is equally happy because some people find the sanctions are more expensive for them than others, but uh, I still think it's been an important instrument.
0: So one of the other big questions around Russia-Ukraine is about the the unity of the West, which I suppose is another element of American power. Mm -hmm. To what extent is there a West uh, and how resilient is that? We're seeing a lot of tactical divisions. We were both in, at the Munich Security Conference last right. weekend where there were big uh, debates between Europeans and Americans about whether to arm Ukraine. There have also been tactical discussions about um, you know, the sanctions regime, uh, the balance between engagement and uh, hedging, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to what extent do you think Europeans and Americans uh, are simply divided on the tactics or do you think that there is a deeper more philosophical division when it comes to how we see the crisis and how we define
1: it? Well there are different Europeans and different Americans but on average I think that uh, it's been a division over tactics. At, um, at Munich at the Security Conference uh, Chancellor Merkel said uh, no to provision of arms and uh, Senator McCain said absolutely important. And when uh, Secretary of State Kerry was asked about this, he said, keeping Western unity comes first. And it's interesting that uh, Putin's d- desire to break the U.S. and Europe apart has not succeeded. And uh, I think one of the things that Obama has done has made sure that he keeps very close touch with Chancellor Merkel. I think they're on the phone yeah. every week. And uh, so far that unity has managed to Uh, survive, Uh, whether if Putin keeps his aggression uh, going forward, whether that unity will continue to survive. I think it's one of the big questions we face.
0: I think in a way it's the the aggression which is keeping us together. I'm more Mm. worried about what happens if there is space for de-escalation because what I picked up when I talked to European officials and to American officials is that maybe there is a kind of different notion of of what is at stake in this crisis and which relates to different ideas of European order. Because I think for most Americans, the European security order is essentially NATO and the security blanket, which we're all snuggling uh, Mm -hmm. under in these difficult times. Whereas for most Europeans, NATO is obviously a key bit of the order, but it's only part of the order. And what was even more important was the creation of the European Union and a different way of thinking about power and how countries would relate to each other. And that was something which, um, the unspoken idea was that that would apply to the whole European continent. And what's happened in with, with Crimea is that it's quite clear that it's never going to apply to the whole continent. And that, therefore, if you've got an American perspective, you've got a problem, a norm has been broken, you need to deter it, you need to be tough, uh, but it, it essentially, and there might be tough decisions to be made, but it's relatively clear what you need to do. I think for, for the European notion, it's a more fundamental problem because what, you thought, what we, Europeans thought of as a sort of universal order for their continent is now being shown both to be much more vulnerable than they thought it was, but also mm-hmm. something which will never be uh, the order, it might be part of an order, mm-hmm. and that we therefore have to think about a future where you have other powers like Russia, maybe Turkey, that have alternative ideas and projects which are existentially threatening to our notion of order so and then but we're going to have to live with them so then if you kind of move forward it also means that the sanctions for example um it it changes your attitude towards sanctions because at the moment you needed to do sanctions if you weren't going to put troops on the ground when things started and have peacekeepers in ukraine Um, you know what were you going to do give the Russians medals for (laughs) annexing Crimea we had to act in a tough way but for for Europeans I suppose they're thinking more about how do we live with Russia in the longer term you know is a post Putin regime necessarily going to be better than Putin how do you engage with Russia in a way that we can live with because clearly we can't accept spheres of influence but also they're not Mm. going to be in the European Union so it's different sort of calculus and maybe that explains why Merkel and and uh, Hollande were trying to negotiate another Minsk and to think about these different types of engagement was from an American perspective partly also you're thinking about Russia as a global power as well you know there's ISIS mm-hmm. there are all sorts of other problems which, which you need to work with Russia on um, so it leads to different kind of tactics I mean how, how serious do you think those differences in perspective which go back I suppose to the very end of the Cold War and how we saw the Cold War ending uh, are going to be as we go
1: forward I think the American and European interests are quite close on this. Uh, It's true the impact of the Ukraine events and the sanctions uh, are stronger on Europe than on the U.S. But in the longer term, um, Americans have to ask, what kind of Russia do we want to see in 10 years? And we want to see a Russia which is reintegrated into Europe. So in that sense, I think the American and European perspectives are not so, uh, so far apart. The, the problem we have both in Europe and America is how do you uh, use sanctions and punishment to reinforce this 1945 norm and not essentially uh, develop a new Cold War, and how do you combine that short-run policy of punishment with a long-term strategy of re- reintegrating Russia into Europe? And I think uh, the Europeans and Americans both will have difference in tactics on that. But I think we both share the same objective.
0: Okay. Can I ask you one last question? Mm Because we talked a lot about states and the relations between different states. But the other big theme in your work over the last, well, I suppose decades now, Mm -hmm. has been about the diffusion of power and how the very exercise of power is, is changing. How does that affect the American century? And what kind of tactics and strategies does the U.S., need to develop in order to deal with a world where power is much more
1: diffuse? Well I think that's going to be the big question, what I call entropy in the international system, the ability to get work done as you have not only the rise of new state actors but non-state actors and cyber power is a perfect example of this where non-state actors are able to do things that were once reserved just to governments. So I think we're going to have to have a a more subtle strategy to be able to cope with the diffusion of power Another way of putting it is a lot of people worry about the rise of China, and China passing the U.S. in the next quarter century. I don't think that's going to happen. But the diffusion of power to non-state actors, particularly in the cyber realm, is definitely already happening. And I don't think we fully worked out our strategies
0: in that area. Can you maybe talk a bit about what that actually means, the, the diffusion of power to the cyber realm? I mean, we've seen some examples in the press, the Stuxnet, virus where a, against Iran, uh, North Korea and Sony have been in, the, in mm-hmm. the news recently but these seem to be, I mean they're, they're quite big and dramatic but it's not yet a new world that we're existing in. What does the new cyber world order look like?
1: Well I think that we haven't worked out a set of norms for the cyber world which uh, allow us to cooperate to deter some of these non-state actors if you look at the when a new technology of nuclear weapons uh, disrupted everything after 1945, it took us more than twenty years to begin to get arms control and international agreements, first the Limited Test Ban Treaty and then the Non-Proliferation Treaty, twenty, twenty-five years later. If you think of cyber taking off in the late nineties, when the web expands and becomes the stratum, the substrate for uh, From all economic and other transactions, uh, we're only less than 20 years into this new world. And uh, they're now beginning, states are now beginning to wrestle with norms. But if we don't develop norms, then we're going to be continually prey to criminals, uh, hackers, the so-called dark web, the web that Google doesn't uh, uh, search, uh, which is full of people doing very bad things. And uh, we're going to need, cooperation to be able to control that. So you think that it is
0: the threat to all states of that diffusion of power which could actually bring the world together and and allow the American order to exist at least for a few more decades?
1: Well I think it's going to require cooperation and one of the interesting things here will be do we cooperate first with just a group of like-minded countries developing norms Or can we find some areas uh, where we and the Chinese can have a a set of agreements? There are some areas where U.S. and China have uh, very different views, for example, free speech. China would like to define Falun Gong as a a criminal conspiracy and they shouldn't be allowed to send emails into China. For Americans, that's a First Amendment issue. They can't be prevented from being in San Francisco and sending an email to China. Uh, But on credit card fraud, which is hurting the Chinese now, as well as it's hurting the U.S., becoming increasingly expensive. You can imagine an agreement of China and the U.S. and other countries agreeing on measures to, to stop that. So I think there are areas where we can begin to build up norms, some habits of cooperation, which might gradually expand to other areas.
0: Thank you very much, Professor, and it's been absolutely fascinating. Your book, Is the American Century Over?, is published by Polity in Europe, by Wiley in the United States, and it's going to come out in March, and I very strongly recommend it. Many thanks for your time. Thank you, Mark.